there's a reason that Christianity has been unique in the world for 2,000 years. There's a reason there are some core doctrines that Christians have agreed upon for 2,000 years. And if you don't have those questions, just read your Bible and go on with your life. I don't think you have to let culture tell you that you have to be skeptical in order to be smart. Welcome to the Christian Music Archive podcast, conversations about Christ, community, and music. I'm your host, Dave Maurer. In this episode, I'm talking with Elisa Childers. Now, Elisa was part of the pop trio Zoe Girl back in the early 2000s, and fans of early Jesus music will appreciate that Elisa is the daughter of Chuck Gerard. Chuck was part of the group Love Song. Uh, They were very pioneering in the early CCM days. And he also had a fairly substantial solo ministry of his own. Elisa experienced a period of profound doubt about her faith and spent quite a bit of time searching for answers to those questions. Through that process, she has become a popular speaker, blogger, and podcast host. She's just released a book chronicling her search for truth and an understanding of what her Christian faith means to her. In 1 Peter 3.15, we're encouraged to, quote, be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. My conversation with Elisa has challenged me to be better prepared to share about my faith and why I believe what I believe. Maybe this conversation will do the same for you. But before we start our talk, I want to remind you that this podcast is part of the ChristianMusicArchive.com. This is my website documenting the women and men of Christian music and the albums that they've made. I'd encourage you to head over there and check it out. I've documented over 10,000 albums and listed about 1,900 different artists with their biographies and pictures and so forth. But one of the favorite things that I'm most passionate about is our prayer team. We send out a weekly prayer newsletter inviting you to join us in prayer for different artists each week, and you can sign up for that free newsletter on our website. So, if you're a fan of Christian music, and I guess you are because you're listening to a podcast about Christian music, head over to christianmusicarchive.com today. And while you are there, you can check out past episodes of this podcast that you may not have listened to yet. Well, I'm happy to welcome Elisa Childers to the podcast today. Elisa is the daughter of famed CCM pioneer Chuck Gerard. A lot of our um, mem- listeners will remember him as a member of Love Song. And uh, Elisa has had a significant music career of her own. Uh, she was part of the group Zoe Girl. Uh, and I think she had a solo uh, art, uh, album in 2008. And I think, if memory serves, that she actually had a, a family band. We might talk a little bit about that, too. Um, currently she is, uh, the podcaster of her own. She has a podcast called the Lisa Childers podcast, and she's also just released a brand new book called Another Gospel, which has been published by Tyndale Publishers. And so obviously we have a lot of stuff to talk about. Elisa, welcome to the podcast. Dave, thanks so much for having me. This is going to be fun. Something that's always intrigued me is when I hear about kids who grow up to do the same thing that their parents did? Maybe they became a doctor because their mom was a nurse or some missionary kids grew up to be pastors. You started in a pretty famous music family. How did you decide to follow in your dad's footsteps and become a singer of your own right? Yeah, I can hardly remember a time before I knew that that's what I was going to do. Although there was a time when I was much younger where I was absolutely convinced that I was going to be a competitive gymnast ah. and go to the Olympics and be like Mori Lurettin. But a really interesting thing happened to me when I was about 11 or 12 years old. I remember uh, just sitting down at the piano one day and my only real exposure to the piano and singing was essentially just piano lessons that my mom made me take yep. that I hate. I hated piano lessons. <laughs> I hated practicing. But I had a little bit of that in my background. And I remember after I quit piano lessons, I sat down at the piano and for the first time played music because I 
loved it. Uh-huh. This moment happened, this aha moment where I sat down and I started playing the piano and I started writing my own songs. Mm. And I remember that was a significant shift for me. And it was almost instantaneous that I was just like, I'm going to quit gymnastics and oh, wow. I'm going to, I'm going to do music. Well, I found out that after I told my parents that, they said that two weeks before that had happened, they had both sat down to pray for me that God would redirect my life if this wasn't <laughs> the path that he had for me. Because not you know, not that I would have made it to the Olympics or anything, but that's just an all-encompassing dream. Gymnastics is kind of like figure skating, where that's like all you do. Right, yeah. And so, yeah, God just completely redirected me into music at 11 or 12 years old. And from that point on, there was nothing else that I was ever going to do with my hmm. life. And so all throughout middle school and high school, I pursued that. My dad would take me to his local concerts and I would sing a song to my Sandy Patty track or something. Yeah. I'd even sing one that I wrote and got my feet wet that way. Did some street evangelism where we would take our karaoke boxes out on the street of Hollywood and New York City. And I, I'd sing there and, and minister. And so, yeah, it was just in my blood from a really young age, but there definitely was that redirect from the Lord when I was very young. So dad had had to have had some kind of an influence on the fact of what kind of music you'd sing, or was that just kind of an outgrowth of the faith that you had in your home? I think so. I, I think a little bit of both. Of course, growing up, my dad would play us uh, you know, Tina Turner records and some of the Beatles and just yeah. just teaching us to recognize good production. And so my my whole musical education was around that rock and roll kind of style where there wasn't mm-hmm. like Southern gospel in my house or anything like that. Right. And so, yeah, that was just what was in my blood. And from a faith perspective, uh, yeah, definitely that was so much modeled by my dad. I remember some of my earliest memories would be going with him to his concerts and just being, even as a young person, being really struck by his heart and mm. just the authentic uh, expression of his faith. He was always very real about it. He uh, never wanted to charge people for concerts or for CDs. I even remember him saying, you know, we have CDs for sale. We'd like to suggest a certain amount, but if you don't have money with you, or you don't, you can't afford it. We want you to take one home anyway. Right. And so I think that that kind of approach to ministry, where it was definitely ministry first, that mm-hmm. was very formative for me in how I approached music myself. Were you aware of the impact that your dad was having on Christian music as an industry, so to speak? Or was that just kind of, oh, that's just dad stuff? I think so. I think to a certain extent I did because. I remember always feeling kind of proud of that. You know, it's like my uh-huh. dad is a Christian singer. And, you know, maybe that was even some pride that the Lord had to work on me with. Um, <laughs> I don't think I fully had a grasp until I was older of just the um, the influence of that music scene in the Jesus mm-hmm. movement, Calvary Chapel, Southern California, and how much that would go on to become what we know today as contemporary Christian music and, uh, you know, kind of morphed into its own identity from there. But yeah, I think I, I was, I was mildly aware, maybe not fully, but, um, but yeah, I was always, I always thought that was very cool at least. Yeah. So, so how did you then get hooked up with Christy and Chrissy, right? Yeah. Kristen and Chrissy. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you get hooked up with them to start Zoe Girl then? Okay. So this is a bizarre story. (laughs) So One of the promoters that used to bring my dad's band over into the UK was a guy named Norman Miller. And another guy who was in our small group from our church when I was a little kid was a guy named Peter York. Now, it just so happens that when I was in my early 20s, Norman had gone on to become a very successful manager in Christian music, yeah. and Peter had gone on to become the president of then Sparrow Records, which is I don't even I don't even know if it's Columbia now or something. It was EMI for a while, now it's Columbia, I think. But um, so we had connections with both of those guys, and I had moved to New York for a year and a half or so, to, uh, close to two years, I think, to do some inner city ministry. And when I came back. 
it was, I, I really felt like I wanted to pursue this music more seriously. And okay. I think I had even met with Peter when I was in New York just to chat about where things were at with music for me. But I basically ended up sending both of them my demo. And so Norman called me and said, you know, I'm working on this girl group with uh, Peter York, who, or no, he didn't tell me at that time it was Peter. He just said, I'm working with this other guy on this group we want to put together. And I'd really love for you to be a part of it. And so uh, I came out to Nashville and I remember meeting with Peter and Norman and them both telling me that, you know, this was kind of their baby. They, they, they yeah. formed this group and they both thought they had a person for the group. So they thought they had two members, not realizing that they were both talking about the same person. So they had both oh. thought of me for the group. So we're like, oh, we, we just have one. <laughs> and, uh, and then we met Chrissy. Well, I met Kristen first. So Kristen was singing in another band, kind of a alternative uh, indie rock type of band. And someone from the label had heard her sing and thought that she and I should meet. And we just hit it off oh, cool. instantly and started writing music together. And then we met Chrissy through this random connection. This guy was a children's musician uh, who was like had kazoo records and he lived in a tree house. Oh. I mean, he was a very eccentric person, but he knew Chrissy and he knew Kristen. And so he said, well, you got to meet this girl, Chrissy from New Jersey, because she had just been in a group with the singer Pink and uh, okay. she had gotten out of that. And so, and had just become a Christian. And so we met with Chrissy and it was just, that was it from, from the time the three of us met, it was just an instant lock. And we knew that this was the group. Oh, wow. Well, that, that is quite a story. <laughs> well, and it kind of goes to one of the, the purposes of my podcast is talking about community. And sometimes community is uh, people who are doing things on our behalf or, uh, you know, are the hands and feet of Jesus putting things together. And so to have Peter and Norman kind of doing that behind the scenes, yeah. that's kind of cool. Yeah, it is. And so uh, being in a girl group or even any kind of group wasn't really ever something I had on my radar. I was, in my mind, I was more of a singer songwriter. But mm -hmm. when I met the girls and really caught the vision of, you know, putting aside my artistic desires in a way and mm -hmm. then taking this wonderful opportunity to make music that could really touch young girls and really encourage them to stay strong in their faith, um, it, it was something I really wanted to do. And so, yeah, I mean, I have such fond memories of my time with the girls. We got to play some amazing venues like Madison Square Garden and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We got to tour with some of the most interesting and best Christian music artists over those years. And it was just a real sweet time. Yeah. And you guys were together for about eight years and, or no, about, yeah, about eight years. And you did about mm -hmm. five albums, right? I think we, I think we had four studio albums and then there were some, remix albums and you know mm. the, the labels always doing other stuff but the four i think there were four studio albums yeah so at some point then you guys broke up and i know it was amicable it wasn't like anybody was mad at anybody right right so what was the what was kind of the direction of moving you from being in the group to because then you did a solo record after that yeah i think by the time that we ended up parting ways as a group we were all married by this point and starting to have kids. And the the label was kind of pressuring us to change directions a little bit and to mm. focus less on original music like pop music and life music, situational music, and focus more on worship music. Mm. Now, all of us mm -hmm. were worshipers at heart, but I think we just felt like we don't want to do something that's that's artificial if especially in the realm of worship. We didn't want to do that just because it was trendy or because that's what was selling at the time. Yeah. And uh, if, you know, to be honest, I was really, really burnt out. I was mm. burnt out yeah. and I just didn't have it in me to do much more. And I had at, at the same time, I'd been writing all these songs throughout the years that never really fit through the Zoe girl filter. And I just thought, man, I'm really burnt out with this, and I, I just kind of, I mean, like you, like we, you, you mentioned, it was amicable. We're still really good friends and really sisters, if at heart, right? Um, but yeah, I just, I think I couldn't go on anymore, and 
And so then when, when we ended, uh, I did end up recording a little solo album in 2008. And I actually did some shows uh, to promote that album when I was like eight and nine months pregnant with my first mm. <laughs> child. So that, that was, makes a challenge. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. How do you get breath support when you're uh, carrying oh, a baby like that? <laughs> with, a guitar, with a guitar on my big old belly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I kind of gathered, um, and this is something that I think all of us as kids, I think especially of kids growing up in home of a parent who is a, a leader, mine were pastors and missionaries, is you have to at some point decide, is this Jesus thing, because that's really what it was for me, mm. is it my own relationship or is it, am I doing it just because mom and dad said it was mm. uh, important to do? Yeah. Did you go through something like that? You know, from as far back as I can remember, my relationship with the Lord was my own. I, wow. Yeah, I loved Jesus as far back as I can remember. I was really, I mean, I don't, I didn't realize then that this was not all that normal, but mm-hmm. as far back as I had learned to read and write, I loved to read the Bible. I knew when I read the Bible, I knew that this was the Word of God. I knew that I couldn't go wrong basing my life on this. And I was kind of that kid. I was the kid mm. that just loved Jesus, was always telling everybody about Jesus. I loved to go do ministry so that I could tell more people about Jesus. I, w- I was the kid that would show up to my high school at six o'clock in the morning to walk around and pray for revival among my right. friends. <laughs> and so yeah. no, I don't remember there ever being a time where I thought, well, am I really just doing this because of my parents? I, I think my parents gave me the real gospel and it just yeah. it just got into me. And so now I did go through a really significant time of doubt later in life after Zoe Girl was over, where uh, from an intellectual perspective, I, I went through a real crisis of faith intellectually, wondering if what I believed all my life was true. And how did that come about? Is that something that uh, you had an outside influence that was saying, oh, are you sure you really believe this? Or what was what was it that kind of caused you to, that doubt? Yeah, there was an outside influence. So after Zoe Girl came off the road and I had my daughter, um, she, she had either just been born or I was still pregnant with her, but I was invited to sing at a local church here. And the second my husband and I got there, we just connected with the people. They just were so loving mm. and so accepting of us. And, you know, after you spend seven, eight years on the road, touring around to every kind of church you can imagine. You start to kind of right. a product to people. Mm-hmm. And we just didn't feel that way at this church. We felt like they just really loved us and we loved the pastor. My husband and I had never really been exposed to the intellectual side of Christianity. So we were really intrigued by his thoughtful sermons. And so we started attending this church and it was about eight months in that the pastor invited me to be a, pa- a part of a small study and discussion group. And it was in the context of this smaller group that he revealed that he was actually agnostic. And it really mm. threw me because this is the guy that was giving these mind-blowing sermons on that Sunday. Yeah. Um, but over the course of about four months, uh, every skeptical claim you can think of having to do with Jesus and with God, the nature of God, the nature of Jesus, and especially about the Bible, like, can we trust the Bible? Do we have an accurate copy? All of those kinds of questions. Yeah. Um, we're, we're sort of brought out into the open and really all of those questions were deconstructed and picked apart. And so it, it, it was it was really rocking my faith, but I would try to fight with him. I'd try to argue and defend Christianity. But it wasn't until we decided to leave the church. Um, and then I was kind of at this time in my life where I was isolated that all of the doubts that he planted in that class began to take root and really grow. And that's when the crisis of faith really happened. But I think it was so powerful because it was coming from a pastor who had spent eight months basically earning my trust and my respect. Mm. I mean, I heard some of those arguments when I would do street evangelism. I would expect an atheist on sure. Hollywood Boulevard on Halloween to be yeah. saying God doesn't exist. But it, that, <laughs> that didn't rock my faith. But when it was a pastor, and, I, and honestly, because I couldn't escape, I was in this class and I had to really face these questions for the first time. And it was it was a really a, a true dark night of the soul. My goodness. Uh, to me, it's a, almost a bait and switch. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because on Sunday, his sermons were fairly normal. Like there was nothing that he said on a Sunday morning that sent red flags up or gave me any kind of an, of, of alarm. But in yeah. the context of this class, I think what he was going through is something we're seeing a lot of Christians go through right now, which is the process of deconstruction, where everything they've ever believed is essentially just getting picked apart and discarded. And yeah. he was processing that with a smaller group. And mm. um, yeah, it really rocked me pretty hard. Well, and one of the things that I've been noticing as we've kind of looked at our society is I we are, I think, on the downhill slide of post-Christianity. Mm. And unfortunately, I think that there's a lot of people who are saying, well, I'm going to choose what pieces of the gospel I'm going to uh, listen to and agree with and what parts I can throw out. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right, because um, one of the, the characteristics of this church that my faith was challenged in, at the time, I hadn't heard the phrase progressive Christianity anywhere but uh -huh. all I knew is that everybody in my class was not just changing secondary issues like, oh, I used to think the earth is young. Now I think it's old or I, you know, I'm changing my mind on women in ministry a little bit or something. It wasn't it right. wasn't like that. It was like core essential doctrines, the atonement of Jesus, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, the physical resurrection of Jesus, the reliability of the Bible, the Bible even being God's mm -hmm. word. Right. Um, all the people in my class were changing their minds on these really core essential doctrines. And, and I think that, that what you're describing, this kind of post-Christian, we're seeing so many deconstruction stories. We're seeing major Christian, you know, platformed Christians even coming out and saying, I don't believe anymore, or yeah. I don't know anymore. And so I think that when I was in that class, a lot of people were starting to go through this process of deconstruction. And I do think it's a result of where we're at culturally. I think that we've never had more skepticism just available right at our fingertips with the internet. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely taking its toll, I think, on on the faith of Christians. Well, it's interesting because I was uh, attending a church that that was the church that my parents brought me up in. They're pastors in this denomination. And um, I I got to a point personally where I was thinking, you know, this church, I just I don't feel fed here anymore. And I didn't really know why until after I left that church and found a church where I was being fed scripturally again and looking back and realizing that this pastor had just kind of, kind of like what you described your that pastor had done, had just slowly directed us away from the Bible mm. being the core focus of what Christianity is about, about Jesus being one of the cool people that we listen to, maybe not the mm. person. And, and unfortunately, and a tough, tough time, but that church split. And so now we have two different groups of people. And what made that even harder for me is that my kids landed on one side and mm. I landed on the other side. And I think that I'm seeing a lot of that in our culture today of churches that are not making the gospel, not making Jesus the truth. It's a truth. And that makes it very easy to kind of put it on a shelf and it, maybe it's not the focus of what we need to look at. I think you're right. And many people will remember the emergent church in mm -hmm. the late 90s, early 2000s. And so many people think that that just went away. They think, well, you know, when John Piper tweeted, farewell, Rob Bell, it was all over. And all these guys <laughs> just kind of went back into their their rooms and stopped what they were doing. But they really didn't. And um, even Brian McLaren, one of the founders of that whole emergent movement that was essentially, you know, doing a lot of these core changes or trying to, at least within the evangelical church, mm -hmm. uh, the, the gatekeepers were successful at kind of pushing that out of the evangelical church at that time. But Brian McLaren wrote in a blog post in 2012, he said, you know, we, we didn't go away. There's, we're in fact growing. This movement was growing mm -hmm. and continuing to, uh, to people finding each other on online chat rooms and on social media. And he said, we just don't use the word emergent so much anymore. And so this is when this whole idea of progressive Christianity uh, really came on my radar. Uh, so this church that I was at where my faith was challenged, years later after we left, they rebranded themselves and they 
took down their old belief statement. They wrote a new one. They put it up there and they rebranded themselves as a progressive Christian church or progressive Christian community. And I began to see that phrase everywhere. And I think hmm. what happened was I think that all of the emergent Christian uh, people that kind of were pushed out, they just continued to, to find each other and grow, but reemerge now as this new kind of even more unified movement with yeah. pressure and younger faces called progressive Christianity that's calling everything into question. Like, I think they had legitimate critiques in the beginning. You know, maybe Christians haven't been as loving as we could be to a particular group of people or right. things along those lines. But And I had some of those kind of critiques too, but I didn't know that the end game really was to throw the gospel out with all the other stuff. And so I yeah. think that's why um, it, it's rocking people's faith and, faith and making them feel like they do have to choose between the, the historic Christian gospel and what they feel like might be a more loving choice to be able to affirm everybody and everything that they want to do and think, because we live in a very pluralistic society that that puts that forward as a virtue. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough time to be... A believer in in Western society right now, for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit here because I have two directions I want to go, and I can't ask both questions and have you answer them both at the same time. <laughs> so, so I'm going to start with um, where did this kind of because it sounds like this time in this church, which was so beautiful to start with, but then kind of morphed into something that was really painful and, and challenging for you. How did that affect the music side? Because you haven't put out another album, at least that I'm aware of, since then, and you've kind of changed your focus of what your ministry is. Yeah, definitely. I uh, I haven't done music in a while, although I will admit, between you and I, I do sit down <laughs> at the piano still. And uh, I, I still write songs. I just, I don't, I don't, they don't have an outlet anywhere. But um, yeah, my life radically changed as a result of being in this class at this church. Because when I went into this dark night of the soul, um, my faith deconstructed. I didn't know what was happening to me. I didn't know that word yet, but right. I was on my way to unbelief. And it was terrifying. Hmm. I remember the darkest moment of doubt being when I was rocking my little girl in the rocking chair in her room. I used to love to rock my babies to sleep. And, yeah. you know, the room was dark, but there was like more than just the lights being off. There was this almost like physical darkness in the room. Mm -hmm. And I remember just crying out to God, but not even knowing if there was anybody out there hearing me. And for somebody whose entire life and identity had been based on faith, yeah, that was uh, unbelievably agonizing to go through that, to feel like maybe my whole life was a lie. Uh, and yeah. I didn't know any Christians who could answer some of the intellectual objections that were being brought about in this class and through some of the books that we were having to read for the class. And so I remember just crying out to God, like, if you're there, if you are there, if you exist, you have to show up. You have to show me. Because right now, my mind believes that you don't exist, but my heart knows that you do. And so it was just like this tearing of my soul because my mind and my heart were at odds. Yeah. And um, and it was, and God answered my prayer by uh, sending apologists. So I, I discovered apologetics. And not just like, I was hoping for a good enough answer to slide by, you know, like good right. enough to believe this is okay and you can just keep going. But the robust depth of the answers that I discovered was so overwhelming. But, but the thing was, is when I was looking to find answers to some of my questions, I couldn't find any resources that were directly addressing these claims coming from the church. Hmm. The apologists were able to help me because they're the same claims that atheists make, and apologists are usually answering the atheists, and so they were helpful answers to me. Uh, so but, let me let me just interrupt real quick yeah. here. Define what an apologist is, and then also while we're doing definitions, define what you're talking about when you say progressive Christianity, and then we'll continue on in this conversation. But I think those two terms might be confusing to folks. Very good. Yes, defining terms is very important in <laughs> discussion <laughs> today. Um, so an apologist is essentially. 
Apologetics, which is what apologists do, is just being able to give an answer for why you believe what you do. So apologetics isn't necessarily stating the gospel in propositional form, but it's 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 giving answers to people that may not be able to take a clear look at the gospel because there is so much doubt and skeptical sort of um, information around them. For example, if somebody thinks that the New Testament has been corrupted, it's going to be very difficult to just tell them the gospel that you're getting from the New Testament because they think it's been corrupted. So an apologetics would come, an apologist would come along and give information about how the, tra- the manuscripts were transmitted, how we can know that they're reliable, how we, how we can bank on the fact that these were actual eyewitnesses that were documenting what they saw and heard. And so it's essentially just clearing intellectual obstacles that are standing in front of the gospel for a lot of people. And basically, this is a command that we were given in the Bible in, in 1 Peter, right? Yeah, to be prepared to give an ready. answer. And the, yeah, the Bible actually commands Christians. And, and this was actually written to Christians who were going through persecution. But it says, always be ready to give an answer yeah. to the hope that lies within you. And that, and that Greek word there, always be ready to give an answer, that's the word apologia, where we get apologetics, and it's actually a gotcha. courtroom term. So back in the first century, if you were accused of a crime, you would have the chance to get up and give an apologia, to give a defense for your innocence. And so in that sense, Paul is saying, you know, this is a command for Christians. We have to be ready right. to do this. So that's all it is. It's not, it's not apologizing for your faith. It's not some kind of... Uh, stuffy intellectual exercise, although it can be for some people, I'm sure. But on the heart level, it's it's to help people with their doubts and their struggles. Right. And then okay. progressive Christianity, I would just define it as a movement of people coming out of, in and out of the evangelical church, who are not just changing their minds on some political issues or some social issues, but they're actually redefining what Christianity is. And they're largely marked by their view of the Bible, which is not that the entire Bible is the word of God, internally coherent, without error, without contradiction. But in the progressive church, the Bible is more seen like an ancient spiritual travel journal. This is the people who wrote the Bible, according to progressive Christianity, they were just doing their best to describe God as they best could understand him in the times and the places in which okay. they lived. And then they they largely reject the atonement. They refer to the atonement of Jesus as cosmic child abuse, which gives mm. them a, a it, you end up with a real workspace, more social justice type of gospel that removes all elements of uh, sin and repentance and man being reconciled to God in any meaningful sense and puts in its place like a social justice thing. So in the progressive church, it's much more important what you do than right. what you believe. Okay. So we, we've kind of, we've kind of wrapped up how, what this all means. I'm now interested in how did you, how did God talk to you? How did Jesus make himself real to you so that you could work through these questions that you were wrestling with? Oh man, in so many ways, Dave, it, it was just, at first, it was really dark. It was hard. It was a lot of really hard work of studying. In fact, I remember when I was in this kind of real confused place, I was rocking my... Now, by this time, my son was born. So this this was several months at least that I was in this really dark place. Okay. And I remember um, just rocking him and just sensing the Lord lead me to study. And that's all I heard was just like study. And because I was frustrated, I had just read a blog post that one of my progressive Christian friends had just posted and it confused me. I knew that it was wrong, but I didn't know how to articulate an answer. I didn't think I'd Mm -hmm. ever be able to do that. And I just sensed it was like study. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what the Lord had for me beyond that. But I thought, well, I'll, I'll do that. And so I started to audit seminary classes. I started uh, listening to several different seminaries would would offer some of their lectures for free online. I started to listen to a bunch of those. I started listening to apologetics lectures. I started listening to scholars. I started reading as much as I could as a mom with two small (laughs) children, but a lot of listening. And, um, and it was it was mainly when I got connected with the seminary that those professors were amazing. I mean, I was just basically this stay-at-home mom that I wasn't even paying full pop tuition. This was just auditing. And mm-hmm. they would so patiently answer my questions and send me resources. Uh, okay, you've read that book. Now you need to read this one. 
And it was really through that process of studying because I had the heart thing down. I, I felt the presence of God since I was a kid. Like that was never right. a problem for me. But the the intellectual attack, I didn't know how to answer that. I didn't, I couldn't have told you why I believed the Bible was God's word. I just knew that it was. And so I had okay. to get to the bottom of those intellectual questions. And so it was just largely through the study of apologetics that God just began to rebuild my faith. And then in 2016, I was just gonna put it on the shelf and go back to music or something else. But mm -hmm. through a, a sequence of events that the Lord orchestrated, uh, I was encouraged by some apologists to start a blog, which I was not going to do. I was like, I do not. <laughs> the world doesn't need another blog. But they encouraged me that, you know, you might be able to reach an audience that we can't reach. Yeah. And so I did. And boy, I'll tell you what, over the course of me starting that blog, and then I started to blog about progressive Christianity. And those were the posts that would that would go viral because people wanted to know what was going on with this sure. progressive Christianity. And then, of course, that led to writing this book that just came out. Yeah. Well, so let me ask, one of the things that I've had people talk to me about is the is confirmation bias. And I don't know if you understand confirmation mm -hmm. bias. That's where you surround yourself with a certain viewpoint so that all of a sudden you are right because that's all you hear about. Mm -hmm. And so, so and I'm playing devil's advocate here because yeah. I, I want the listener to understand that you and I are of the same heart. But there are people that say, well, Elisa, you just surrounded yourself with this specific apologetics viewpoint. How do you know that you're not missing another side that's equally or more important? Yes, and that is a very good question and something we all need to guard ourselves against because the temptation can be, I'm flailing, I'm doubting, I'm going to go find somebody to tell me what I want to hear, and then that's all, and I'm going to stop there. But right. one of the things that I love about this particular seminary that I audited classes in is they make you read the skeptical stuff too. So <laughs> <laughs> I had to read liberal theologians for certain classes. And then on my own, I did the same thing because one of the things that um, I really wanted to get to the bottom of, and it's really sort of the thesis of my whole book, is what is what is the meaningful definition of Christianity? Because when I was in doubt, I thought, well, if I'm going to walk away from it, I want to make sure I'm walking away from the real thing and not just whatever version of it I grew up with. Maybe that's not the real mm -hmm. thing. And yeah. so uh, in the process of doing that, I wanted to make sure that I was reading skeptical scholars like Bart Ehrman and Ludemann and uh, some of the others, Pete Enns, who's a very influential scholar in the progressive church. So I was reading those guys alongside of Kostenberger and Michael Kruger and Peter Williams and uh, trying to figure out what they all agreed on. So like for an, for an example, when I was trying to get to, I was told that our New Testament contains hundreds of thousands of mistakes. That's how it was worded hmm. to me. And I thought, well, if that's true, then there's going to be some kind of common thread between the most skeptical and atheist scholars on this and the mm -hmm. conservative evangelical scholars. There's going to be a common thread that they're all saying, yeah, we all agree that X, Y, and Z is true. So I want right. to get to the bottom of that. And what I learned, uh, for, it was actually delightful learning that they generally all agree on how many manuscripts we have. They all agree on how many differences there are between those manuscripts, which is often when it's framed like mistakes. That's how people who are more skeptical will frame it. But really, it just means there are differences in the manuscripts. But even the most skeptical scholar, like this is the guy that Discovery Channel has on every Easter to debunk the resurrection, right? Hmm. Art Aaron, yeah. uh, I started following his blog and even he said the vast majority of these differences between the manuscripts don't affect the meaning at all. So if you have two manuscripts of John and let's say there's 50 differences between them, even he's saying the, the vast majority of those differences are just spelling differences. Maybe huh. the word is put out of order. So in one manuscript, it says Jesus Christ. And in the other one, it says Christ Jesus. Uh, now, there are a, a select few meaningful variants that where they do change the meaning and scholars aren't sure what the original wording is. But here's the thing right. I discovered from reading all of the vastly different uh, by, uh, scholars from different worldviews. They all agree on how many differences there are and how many manuscripts. They disagree on what that all means. 
But mm-hmm. even Bart Ehrman saying it doesn't, you know, it's not going to change the gospel. He said this in a debate. He said, even if you took the most meaningful variants we have, it's not going to, ch- it's not going to change any cardinal core doctrine of Christianity. And so at that point, I realized if somebody's going to walk away from their faith because of this, there, there seems to be something else going on underneath that. And so to answer your question, I, I think that I, I would say a couple of things. I think we do need to be careful to guard against confirmation bias. But there's also this idea in our culture where culture has made it a virtue, agnosticism a virtue. So mm. if you'll just keep reading all the skeptical stuff and keep doing all of that, that's virtuous. That's actually seen kind of as the highest good. And if yeah. you land on an answer, well, that makes you small-minded and that makes you simplistic and immature. Huh. And I think we need to fo- push against that a little bit too, because as G.K. Chesterton said, the purpose of opening your mind is to shut it again on something solid. You don't want to just leave your mind <laughs> hanging open for all the garbage to come on in. Right. So I think there's something to be said for considering all the different viewpoints. But also, I, I, I'm just a truth person. So when I'm asking questions, I'm asking the question because I want to get to an answer. And yeah. I think there's a bit of a, a, a type of mood in our culture where people are asking questions not because they want answers, but because they're just looking for the next best question. And I would question that whole uh, mentality mm-hmm. as well. So what advice would you give? I want to talk a little bit about the book, but I, what advice would you give to somebody who says, I've got some of these questions running around in my mind, but oh my gosh, I don't have time to do this research. I don't want to be spoon-fed a lie. I don't want to be spoon-fed misdirection, but I don't know where to start, and I don't have time to do the deep digging of auditing a class at a seminary or so forth. What would you suggest as a great place to start somebody seeking the truth that yeah. Well, seeking the truth. Period. <laughs> I think if there's a if you're a Christian and you're satisfied that Christianity is true, you don't need to go on some kind of a, a journey to uncover every rock. There's a reason that Christianity has been unique in the world for 2000 years. There's a reason there are some core doctrines that Christians have agreed upon for 2000 years. And if you don't have those questions, just read your Bible and go on with your life. I don't think you have to let culture tell you that you have to be skeptical in order to be uh, mm-hmm. smart, right? Uh, right? If you do have some questions or you want to you know, button up some holes and, and start somewhere, there are some wonderful apologetics books that you can get that are thrilling to read. Uh, Cold Case Christianity by J. Werner Wallace is one. I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turek is another one. Great starter apologetics books that will give you confidence in it, that, that you're not crazy for believing mm-hmm. that Christianity is true. Uh, but yeah, I think that if you're a Christian who is satisfied, I, I don't think you should let culture pressure you into being skeptical about that. I think that, I mean, of course, I believe Christianity is true, so I think you're on the right track, and you you don't have to do all that. Right. Would you rec- uh, recommend the book, Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity? Well, of course I would, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's Elisa's book, and it's just been out this month. Uh, we're, we're recording this in October 2020. Um, Talk to us a little bit about the book and um, kind of what your hope is for it. What what uh, yeah. I usually ask people about music, so it's I'm not used to asking people about books. So <laughs> yeah, no, and I never dreamed I'd be talking with a, a you know Christian music guy about a book I wrote. That I thought you were crazy <laughs> if you told me that ten years ago. But I I wrote this book essentially for the church. I wrote it for Christians who are seeing the red flags of progressive Christianity, uh, maybe in their social media news feeds, maybe in the books and the blogs that they're reading or the podcasts they're listening to, even maybe in the pulpits of the churches they're attending. And they have these red flags, but they're not quite sure how to identify what those red flags are and how to answer some of these things that are coming up. And so I wrote it mostly for them. If I can persuade some people who are leaning toward progressive Christianity to come back, that's great. But my primary goal is to help the church. And so essentially the book is my journey. It's it's a memoir. It's a lot of a memoir where I'm mm-hmm. walking the reader through that dark time of doubt. In fact, the book opens at my darkest time of doubt just to draw you right into that crisis of faith that I was experiencing. 
And then it takes you on a journey of me asking the question, what is Christianity? What is historically, what, what did the earliest Christians think they were passing down to us? Right. How can we trace that through history? And essentially arguing that this move, I, I interact with progressive Christianity along the way and their, their views primarily of the gospel and the cross and the Bible. And I show how contradictory their views of those things are with what I'm calling historic Christianity. And I'm walking the reader through uh, how I reasoned through those things and what I discovered and what I learned. And I give a bunch of resources at the end for people who want to learn more. But essentially, it's a story. It's my story. Mm. And But you're going to get a lot of really good information along the way. Sure. Well, I'm excited to read this. I, I haven't opened it yet. I'm, I'm sorry to say I'm not a big reader, but I will uh, do that. Well, I one of the say things... one thing about that, Dave. Absolutely, yeah. So I recorded the audio book, and uh -huh. it was really important to me that I got to be the voice for that because I just wanted right. to bring to life the words that I'd written. And so there's opportunity where I get to sing a few times in the book. So as I'm reading and there's like a song reference, I'll just sing it. And a lot of people have given feedback that they, they love the audiobook so much that some people have even abandoned reading their hard copy and gone over to the audiobook. <laughs> so for people who, you know, maybe it's not really your thing to sit down and read a book, maybe check out the audiobook because I, I feel like I was really able to to help bring those words to life and and even get to utilize some of my other gifting with singing to yeah. do that. So that's beautiful. So tell people where they can either get the hard copy of the book or the audiobook. You can go to alisachilders.com slash another gospel, and there'll be tabs to go to Amazon and Barnes & Noble Christian Book. But you can get the the book anywhere books are sold. The audiobook, I think uh, maybe Christian Book has the audio version, but Audible okay. definitely has the the um, audio version. But if, but all, the landing page for all of those will be alisachilders.com slash another gospel. Perfect. And we'll put that in the show notes of our podcast here uh, today. Right. You know, one of the things, Elisa, that you said that just really struck me is for those Christians who aren't having that struggle, don't worry about it. Keep reading your Bible. Yeah. And the thing that the thing that came to my mind, uh, my background is accounting. So uh, one of the things that I learned is that the bank tellers, when they're trained to discover a counterfeit bill, they are trained to look at the real thing so that when the fake comes across, they know that it's not the real thing. That's right. And so I would say that those who are listening who want to know the truth, and we truly believe that Jesus is truth and he has chosen his word, the Bible, to speak to us, he uses other ways too, but get to know the Bible, spend time in the Bible so that when a counterfeit comes along— you have no doubt what's truth and what's counterfeit. That's so well put, Dave. I think that that is exactly what I would encourage every Christian to do, because I think that that is one of the main things that got me through this class, is that I, the counterfeit was so obvious to me because I had spent so much time in the Word my whole life. I hadn't studied a lot of systematic theology or church history or archaeology or history or, or creeds or any of this. But I knew mm -hmm. the Bible, and that's what made it so obvious to me that this was wrong. Now, I may not have been able to articulate why or how to answer those things, but I could definitely spot the counterfeit. So what you're saying is, is spot on. What does the Bible say? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Yeah. And that's what a lot of our world needs right now, is the freedom of being set free from all the junk that we're dealing with. So as kind of a little added bonus, are there any plans in the future to uh, do some more music? You know, I, there's something in me that thinks that there is. I, I think that these songs that have been, the, the songs that I've been writing over the past two or three years are so much more theologically rich than anything I've written before. And the Lord knows I'd love to see those go out into the world. Um, yeah. so, you know, I am totally open to that. I am, I would be very excited to pursue something like that, but it, the Lord would have to open that door and it would have sure. to be really obvious, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd really be excited about something like that. 
Well, and the music industry is a whole lot different than it was when you were doing albums with Zoe Girl mm-hmm. because so much as people doing in their home studio or with their friends and doing online streaming and uh, yeah, you know, crowdfunding and all of that. That's uh, right. It yeah. makes it possible for you to do a whole lot more. That'd be it'd be fun to hear some more some more music from you. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'd love it. Well, Elisa, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I just really appreciate your heart, and I appreciate the passion with which you are wanting to help people understand that Jesus is the way and to help people learn how they can ensure that they know the truth. And uh, And I just appreciate your time and your testimony, and so thanks for spending time with us today. Oh, I loved it. Thanks for having me on, Dave. Well, one of the things that we do is we send out a a prayer letter um, every week about musicians, both current and, I I don't like the word past, but you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. not current performers. What are things that we can be praying specifically for you about in these coming days? Oh, thank you for that. Uh, You know, I've really just, when people ask me that, I would love you to cover my kids in prayer. I realize what a target they would be for the enemy, especially when we're dealing with issues of truth and the gospel. So pray for my kids. Uh, Would love prayer for wisdom regarding what opportunities to pursue and which ones. You know, my primary goal is to be a good wife and a good mom. Mm -hmm. And it's it's been a bit of a busy month. (laughs) And so I would (laughs) love wisdom on making good choices and what to say no to and what to say yes to. Um, and then just continued growth in my own relationship with the Lord and that, you know, that he'll, he'll drag us all across the finish line there. For my closing thoughts today, I want to encourage you to follow Peter's biblical challenge to know what you believe and be prepared to share what you believe when people ask. I know for me, it's really easy to talk about music because I invest a lot of time listening to it, I play it, and I research it. We all have things that we're passionate about, and it is easy to carry on conversations with people about our obsessions. Don't you think it is probably more important that we become passionate about our relationship with Jesus? I have access to the creator of the universe, yet I'm not nearly as eager to share about my faith as I am the new music I'm listening to. Honestly, I'm not sure what I would say if someone did ask me why I believe in Jesus. Elisa's encouragement to study and understand my relationship with Jesus is a good and timely reminder for me. Maybe it is for you, too. I sure thank you for listening to these podcasts each week. If you haven't heard all of them, I'm building quite a collection of great conversations, and I'd invite you to check them all out. And if you enjoy these chats, would you be willing to give us a five-star rating and, even better yet, write a quick review? That's the best way to spread the word about these conversations, and thanks for helping out with that. Also, I would love to hear from you. You can reach out on any of my social media accounts by searching for at CCM Exchange on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. And of course, you can drop me an email through the website too, thechristianmusicarchive.com. Well, I've got a busy week ahead of me. I've got three interviews scheduled in the next few days, and I'm excited to share those conversations with you. So check back next week for another great talk with another great artist. And in the meantime, remember this, God loves you. In fact, he's crazy about you.